How can better designed healthcare tools decrease clinician burnout? Why does the electronic health record suck so bad? What are ways to improve data visualization in the medical record? I'm Bonku, the host of Design Lab. It's a show where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Dr. Suba Aranjavia. She is a hospitalist and the Associate Chief Medical Information Officer at Penn Medicine. She has a passion for improving communication between teams in medicine. She developed a handoff training curriculum for medical students and trainees and a curriculum to teach them how to incorporate technology into clinical care. She works to bridge the gap between frontline clinicians and the development of health technology. She created CareAlign, which is a care team collaboration platform to help teams of clinicians work together to take better, more efficient care of patients. She believes that technology should facilitate healthcare delivery instead of making it harder. I know I say this every week, but go to Apple Podcasts, open it up, give us five stars, leave us a review. It's really how you as a listener can support the show. It helps others to find us, tell a friend about the podcast. And while you're there, go to the podcast show notes. You'll find a link to the Design Lab newsletter. Each week, our producer, Rob Leglisi, is going to curate cool, interesting, fascinating stuff for you to read about design and health. Now, here's my conversation with Dr. Suba Aaron Javia. Suba Aaron Javia, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so excited that you're on the show. Thank you, Bon. I'm very excited to be here and talk to you. Let's dive right into the electronic healthcare record. It's gotten much better from paper. I'm old enough that I literally wrote on paper medical records during my training, and then it switched over to electronic. And there's this big hope that it would revolutionize healthcare. And it has in many ways, but and also in many ways, it sucks so badly. Why, why, do, why does the EHR <laughs> Tell me suck what so you really bad? think. <laughs> I mean, oftentimes the number one reason for why physicians burn out, right? I know. It's Which really, is crazy. Especially when you think about how technology has revolutionized the rest of our life for the better, right? Like, I mean, that's the juxtaposition of how it has made so many other things in our life better and easier compared to what it has done in, in healthcare is really stark. And one of the things I like thinking about is, phones, right? iPhones, smartphones, calendars, now email. We don't even think about it. It just works. It's not something that actually takes up any bandwidth or cognitive load for us, at least for most of us, because it works well and it's designed well. Whereas healthcare is the exact opposite. And I, I that's where I really want to get to where technology just works. It's designed for what we need to do. Going back to, you know, what you just said about paper. I also used paper hundred percent. I was definitely there <laughs> uh, and definite pros and cons. I mean, there's so many things the HRs have done, which are great. I mean, I think one of the easiest things to think about is I don't really have to think about allergies. Obviously I do, but I have this safety blanket of knowing that as long as the allergies are put in, right, the EHR is going to check that for me, which is such a tremendous, you know, reduction in workload for all yeah. of us. As opposed to before we had to ask a patient, do you have any allergies? And physically write in the chart every single time, NKDA, no, no yeah. drug allergies. And then check all the cross, all the interactions and make sure you found the note with the right one. I mean, so many reasons why that's so much better. 
But I think that, you know, through the High Tech Act, which I think had a lot of great intentions, the way things were implemented over the last 15 years was really focused around the business. Well, there's a couple of things. One is focused around the business of healthcare mm-hmm. instead of the delivery of care. And that's really where I see things going next is how do we really use technology for what it can do to improve care delivery and workflow. But a lot of the things in meaningful use and the high tech act had good intentions, right? Like it's good to know what family history is. It's good to make sure we do smoking cessation on admission, but the way it was implemented was really poor. And some of that I think is because we didn't know any better, right? We were kind of just learning what we could do with technology. And now we know so much more. Mm -hmm. Some of it was probably because of a lack of alignment and priorities. And I think that's, I think would be lying if we didn't point out the fact that industry's priorities are not always the same as clinicians. And so, you know, being able to check a box and say that you do something as opposed to doing it really well for the intent that it was created for is definitely not something everyone has in mind. But I think the third thing that makes it really hard to even make it better is it's really hard to change things in healthcare, Mm. whether it's because of security or privacy or just culture, you know, lack of interoperability and standards of how we store data and and share data. We have these legacy systems that have been placed for decades. And I mean, when I show them to people not in medicine, they they look at me like I'm crazy and saying, you're kidding, right? This is what doctors are using. I want to, I want to highlight one of those legacy systems. So at my hospital, one of the first versions of the EHR electronic health record was linked to Internet Explorer because a major browser at its time. And then mm-hmm. even to this day, we have Internet Explorer on our computers. And yep. there was a time when we couldn't even go on Google. I guess we didn't have Chrome and we had to use an old version of Internet Explorer. Yeah. So this is one of those legacy systems that had to stay in existence because it was tied to this browser and we're using such outdated systems. And it's not just your health system. That is that same EHR across the country. That's what it has. So there are a lot of different places. And and that's another thing that drives me crazy about health tech is everyone is left to recreate the wheel in their Mm -hmm. own places. I kind of feel like the way we implement EHRs is like we're giving people the parts of a plane we're not checking to make sure that there are safety experts or engineers or, you know, people who know anything about aviation or at least the building of a, you know, plane and saying, here are all the tools and it worked over there. Here are some kind of blueprints and go forth and do well. And if you make a mistake, it's not my fault. Mm. And if you find that something doesn't work well, you can't tell anybody. Mm. I'm digressing a bit, but there's a lot of challenges yeah. around why health tech is the way it is. You know that Atul Gawande piece that says why doctors hate their computers? Yeah, I loved it. Very good. I find myself saying a lot of times though, doctors don't hate computers. Doctors love technology. We love mm. really well-designed things. What we hate is poorly designed technology. Mm. And that's unfortunately what we're left with, which is why people have this overwhelming sense that doctors hate their computers, but we don't. We just don't like things that aren't designed well. Now, so many of us who work in healthcare hate the poor design of many of the systems, but you actually did something about it. So you started a company called Caroline. You're also the CEO of that company. 
what is Caroline and what inspired you to actually do something about it instead of being like me and just complain about it every single day? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, Bon, that you do much more than complain about it. I guess if I were to start with just how I was brought up, which is that I never accept the status quo and I never accept that things can't be made better. So kind of with everything I do ask why, like, why does it have to be this way? Why are we still, you know, using this ridiculous system? Why can't we make it better? So I thank my parents for that. But I guess the quick story is that as an intern at our health system, we were using Word documents to manage our work. And uh, they weren't even networked at the time, which is kind of crazy. So we would print our list and then like wait. What, you, wait, you would you have a computer with literally Microsoft Word and you, you would open up a Word document. And I waited at the computer to get a turn at the end of the day to update my Word document and, and because this it was, wasn't networked. And yeah, network being, it's not like a shared Google Doc, right? Correct. Okay. And, and there wasn't even a shared network drive for me to save the document on so I could access it from another computer. So I'm dating myself, but that was the situation. And I mean, even within my intern year, I think six months in, we at least had networked drives. But the point is we had one document that we would update at the end of the day. And my resident taught me really early that the way we plan as a team and communicate is really important to making sure that things happen as they should. And then we provide great care. So make sure your list is up to date. Always. It was like, you know, hammered into me. But what I really loved about that situation was it gave me this lens through which I experienced all of my residency, which was, this is a potential error, but this is something that would have been better if we were on the same page and we didn't have this communication issue. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, just like once you buy a car, you see that car everywhere in the same way. Once I was aware of these issues, I saw them everywhere. So by the end of my intern year, I, uh, at our meeting with our program director, I said, we need to do this in a better way. This is not good enough. Can you please, you know, help me get resources to do something better? I have no coding background. I just like to solve problems. I've always been tech oriented. My nickname in medical school was computer suba, just because <laughs> I love everything related to technology. And so my program director, Lisa Bellini, who is amazing, really saw the value in what I was proposing and said, okay, I'll get you some resources. So I worked with the IT department at Penn to create really the grandparent of what is now Caroline. And it was a web-based version of what we were doing on Word. So at least it was networked. It was able to bring in some data from our EHRs, of which we had many, but at least we weren't manually entering names and medical record numbers and room numbers. And that in and of itself totally changed workflow. I mean, everyone said, this is so much better. It's saving me so much time. I did this as a second year resident and it really gave me this aha moment of, wow, my ability to improve lives and impact care is exponentially greater through technology and systems improvement than it was through direct patient care. I think that's so, crazy that you're able to do that during working like 80, 90, <laughs> 100 weeks as, as a resident. I think it should be inspiring to those of us listening who feel like we're really busy. There's these intractable problems that we can't do anything about, but you just like went out there and did that. Well, it definitely, thank you for that. It definitely wasn't just me. It was a team effort, but I think it really speaks to, if you find something you love, you make time for it, mm. you know, and when you're passionate about something, then you find the time. And I'm fortunate that I had that experience to really find something I love. So that was the, the experience that led me to say, okay, I'm not going to do critical care or cardiology. I'm going to do clinical informatics. And again, Dr. Bellini was really an important factor in that to give me the okay to say, cause you know, we're all bred to think we have to do 
residency and then fellowship and then this and then that. And she's like, you don't have to do fellowship. You could informatics could be your thing. What is clinical informatics? Because it sounds pretty geeky for those who are listening to have no idea what that is. Yeah. For the record, I'm proud to be a nerd and a geek. It's great. <laughs> I have no problem with that. Label. Me, me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah. So clinical informatics is really, it's, you know how there's basic science and then apply in translational science and applied science. Mm-hmm. I think of clinical informatics as the applied nature of like, you know, really lab work informatics. So it's, mm. it, and I think of it probably the simplest way is to say, bridging the gap between clinicians and the people who are delivering care and the development of the technology that we use to do that. Mm. And that's certainly through my lens. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other things that clinical informaticians do in terms of, you know, analytics and using the data in other ways and, and finding insights from that information. My, my world in clinical informatics has been around bridging that gap to design better technology. Mm. So I certainly didn't know what that was when I was a resident, but I I fell into it. (laughs) So I lobbied for a job at Penn. I mean, I was going to just do general medicine or I was going to do critical care at first. And then I went to all the chief medical officers at the health system to say, I think you need someone like me to be your liaison between the doctors and the the IT department. Because this was before we had, you know, CMIOs everywhere. And they agreed, fortunately. So I was part-time hospitalist, part-time IT advisor for the next 10 years, kind of focusing on everything related to inpatient medicine Mm. and eventually became an associate CMIO for the health system, always kind of working on handoffs and transitions and realized that that's really one small piece of what my actual vision was, which is what Caroline is, which is that it's really all of the workflow of how teams work together. Mm. And I'm sorry this is taking a long time, but the way Caroline started, so Caroline's a third version of what we built. The way Caroline started was that our CMIO at the health system, I had actually taken some time off when I had a baby. And as I was coming back, he said, you know, we should get rid of paper in the handoff and rounding process. And I'm not kidding. I like almost fell out of my chair. I was like, what? (laughs) How are we going to get rid of paper? Can you explain what the handoff process is for those who have not worked on a clinical team and how we literally use paper for that? Yeah. So clinicians use paper lists all throughout the day in the hospital and night and all throughout their outpatient clinics to keep track of what needs to get done. Like literal paper lists that we are writing little check boxes on and notes all throughout the day. And, and, and there's often they're not, they're not templates. They're literally like a blank sheet of paper and chicken scratch on there. Like, yeah. And yeah. that's definitely how they started. I mean, the top three EHRs now at least have a printout where it's a bunch of free text boxes and you can type some stuff into it, but then you print that and you carry it around all day. And this list can be used for multiple things. So it's used for what am I going to do throughout the day? What does my team need to get done during the day for all of our patients? But then it's also used as a transition tool or a handoff document, which means when I leave the hospital, whether it's at night or for the weekend, How do I make sure that the person taking over for me knows what they need to know about a patient and can quickly get to that data and make decisions effectively and safely for patients? So it's this written document that summarizes the things in the EHR. So obviously that could be fraught with errors, right? So we're making life and death decisions sometimes, literally handing off between different teams and you could write down a value of a potassium of 
maybe 5.5, but then if you have sloppy handwriting like me, it can be interpreted as 8.5, which is yeah. then becomes a very critical or vice versa. Level. Yes. Right. It is really bad and it's interpreted as low or not yes. that bad. Absolutely. I mean, there's so many things wrapped up in this, but one of them is why do we even need this document? Well, partly because the EHR is too hard to find information in. It's mm. really laden with too much data. And I think you know that I'm, I'm doing research on how much information is in the chart and it is staggering. So some of the data that we've collected recently, we looked at every note at Penn Medicine over the last six years, it's over a hundred million notes, 33 billion words and 192 billion characters. Okay, now I'm not even talking about vitals and labs and meds and imaging studies, just text that people are writing in notes. And to give you context, all of English Wikipedia in all time as of February, 2022 has around 20, had around 24 billion characters. Mm -hmm. So that means in one health system in one year, we're creating more text than in all of Wikipedia in all time. And then when you look at believable, it's, it's crazy. And then when you look at the, each individual chart, most charts have about 4,200 words. So again, for reference, Hamlet, which is Shakespeare's longest written text is 29,500 words. So the average chart has one sixth or one seventh of the amount of words of Hamlet. Okay. And I'm going to interrupt there and say, well, isn't that a good thing? If I'm looking at my own patient chart, it's like, oh yeah, there's so much written about me. <laughs> like doctors uh, are going, they're writing volumes of information and capturing data. There's all this great information about me and my care. Yes. And no. So I guess if you think about it as well, I have 15 patients to see in a day. And they're scheduled back to back to back to back. But now I need to read and understand Hamlet twice, somewhere in between those appointments. It's completely impossible. And it's not enough to read it. I have to really understand it. I need time to critically think what's about what's in there. I have to also look at the vitals and the labs and everything else. And, you know, people say all the time, and I understand when you're not a clinician, why you would say this. But people say all the time, didn't you see my notice in the chart? Didn't you see that I had this test done? This should be in the chart. And that was part of what prompted us to do this work is to say, no, I unfortunately did not see it in the chart because there's just too much information for me to be able to find it. And your research poster was entitled 16 billion useless words. So what does that mean? Well, 50.1% of all of the words were directly duplicated from a prior note. And I'll be honest, when I first saw that, I was like, oh my God, that's all awful. All of that is bad. But that's not true. The reality is that there's a subset of information about a human that doesn't change, right? It's your old history and things that have happened, but that's important information that's going to affect future decision-making. So I need to be able to see it when I'm making decisions about you. And the EHR just does not support that or the electronic health record doesn't support that. So the only thing I can do is copy it into my current note. So I have it there and accessible. And so now you have, you know, thousands upon thousands of copies of these things, who knows which one is appropriate. But if I were to take you back to that Hamlet reference, and I'll also give you another piece of data, which is that the average note was only 40 words long. Now, average physician, it was 500 words long, but mm -hmm. out of all the notes in the chart, 40 words long. So again, now we're reading Hamlet twice in 40 word segments, each on a separate web page that takes a couple seconds to load. 20 of the 40 words are copied from another page, but you don't know which ones. Mm. 
it's insane. And then you're making life and death decisions, as you said, but that's why we need these handoff documents and these summary documents so that when we're covering a hundred patients, we know what to quickly reference Mm -hmm. and going back to the prior thing, you know, we were using, we use paper. So either, you know, it used to be index cards that we'd handwrite. Now we print things from the EHR or a lot of places use Google docs or spreadsheets to write information and then print it all day. And then you have, we actually measured 22 pages printed per patient per day, just for these lists. Wow. So 22, 22. And that's because there's a lot of different people taking care of the same patient. And they're all, they all have different versions of these papers that they're carrying around. We also measured how long we were carrying them. It was between nine to 12 hours. And there's data that shows out of UCSF that these papers are inaccurate within three hours of printing them. So it's just, (sighs) it's like one after the other ridiculous stat, (laughs) why this is a bad system. And yet it is the standard way that everything is done. And most executives in IT departments don't even realize that this is, you know, they think, oh, well, we paid a billion dollars for this electronic health record. I'm sure we're paperless. Nope. Yeah. Cause a lot of them aren't going to be in the hospital at 1 a.m. seeing how the clinical teams are actually getting work done. Yeah. So back to the CMIO telling me to make it paperless. I thought he was crazy. It's like, this can't be done. And this is where, from a design perspective, I think it's really interesting because I really was stuck in my old way of thinking. And he was like, okay, well, if you can't do it, then I'll find someone else who can. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. I am the only person who has created these systems for Penn Medicine. I am creating this system. (laughs) So so I said, okay, as long as we can get tablets for everybody and mini iPads. And so I did all of these mock-ups and all of these designs for a mini iPad. And when I go back and look at them, honestly, they're kind of recreating what we were doing on paper. I'm embarrassed to say. And um, about a few months in, he got pulled me back into his office and he said, yeah, so we're not going to be able to get iPads for everybody. You're going to have to do it for a phone. And I was like, oh my God, there's no way I can do this for a phone. You're completely crazy. And again, he's like, well, then I'll have to find someone who can. So (laughs) I reached out to Roy Rosen. I'm sure you know Roy at Penn Uh and who's been a great mentor in this whole process. And I said, Roy, can you please help me convince Bill Hansen that this can't be done without phones like or without iPads. Roy Rosen comes from the tech industry and he came to Penn Medicine to run a design center, basically. Right. Yeah. Center for healthcare innovation. Yeah. Yeah. So I said, how do I convince him that we can't do this for phones and we need iPads? And after a lot of discussion, ultimately he was like, look, why don't you gather your team to your absolute best to design it for a phone? And then if it doesn't work, then you go to him and you say, okay, this is what we did. This is what we tried. This is why it won't work. I said, okay, fine. So in other words, he said, throw out your assumptions and try it. Mm. So we got together and we did it. I mean, we did all of these mock-ups and designs. I was like, oh, this could actually work. And then I started you know, thinking about how I use my phone in the rest of my life. I was like, I do everything else on my phone. And I walked around the hospital with my phone, my iPad, my 11-inch MacBook, and realized that hands down, the phone was the easiest to use, yeah. you know, as I'm going through the hospital. So it was such an important first lesson that you really have to, you know, throw out what you think is possible and not possible and design for you know the problem you're actually trying to solve. And the second way that the design plays into this is I was really focused originally on handoffs and what I need to write and to-do lists on, on these papers. So mm-hmm. designing for that. 
And um, we did some focus groups with some residents and the surgery residents were like, you know what? I only have 90 seconds in a room with a patient mm-hmm. when I'm rounding. And I need to have immediately available vitals, labs, meds, all of the new results. And if I don't have that, then I can't go paperless. So it made us really go back and say, well, why do we use paper? Well, we use paper because we don't have immediate access to data. So that's Mm -hmm. why we print our paper every day and write vitals and labs and meds on it. Why do we use paper? Because we need to keep track of tasks. So it was such a incredible learning experience for me about how to do problem-focused user-centered design of what are we actually trying to fix and design for that. I I love that story because you really develop empathy for all the different clinicians in the hospital, not only the medicine resident or the attending, but the orthopedic resident, you know, doctors from different specialties. But because I think you understood the problem so well, that you were able to design a better product at the end of the day. I think that's right. I, and I will say it's not just the doctors, but nurses, therapists, pharmacists, social workers, they all use it. And it's really required us to redefine what it means to be a medical team. It's not just the doctors, it's everybody. And I think that's one of the ways that EHRs really fall short is they separate people by discipline. And we really need to be interdisciplinary with how we approach patient care. I had this experience the other night. I was working in the emergency room and I was next to a patient room and I looked at the nurse's computer and I said, oh, where were their labs? Did I come back? And I was trying to look at her workflow on her computer. It looked totally different from mine and I could not find where the labs were like, where are they? This The interface looks so different from mine, but we're on the same system working in the same department, looking at the same patient. And I could not find information on her workflow because it was designed. It's different for a nurse than it is for a physician. It is astonishing. That was a big lesson for me as an intern when I would place an order and then the nurse would be like, I don't see the order. It's like, I placed it. I see it. And she's like, I don't see it. And it was because the medication administration record for me as a doctor was set to 24 hours. But for her as a nurse, it was set to only her shift. And so it was just a little bit out of her shift. So she didn't see it. And that was that first moment for me of like, oh my goodness, the way these defaults are set and the way the design is of the system is completely changing the experience of how we deliver care and then how we are working together or not working together as a team. It's really amazing. And I don't think there are enough people going back to clinical informatics. There aren't enough people who really understand care delivery, helping design the systems that we're using to provide Mm -hmm. care. So you created a digital product that allows one to be able to access information so much easier, like literally on a smartphone. Yep. Yeah. It's literally paperless. And if you walk through our health systems that are using it, I mean, you don't have to print at all. I walk up right to the room and I can see your vitals, your labs. I can trend them. I can search for anything as an ED doc. I'm sure you'd appreciate this, which is, you know, like, has this patient ever had a CT chest? I can just on my phone, look it up. And in three seconds, I know that you've never had a CT chest or see the report of your CT chest from seven years ago, you know? So, and I love that you could do that at the bedside and you don't have to go to a computer workstation in order to do that. And part of the design involves a lot of data visualization because that's something that is really lacking in current EHRs. Can you describe how you use data visualization to communicate information in your product? 
Yeah. I mean, so there's data visualization of clinical data that we read from the EHRs. Number one, I will say we do it from a patient centric way. So if you have four different EHRs or data sources, everything's brought in around the patient. So if I want to trend your blood count, it trends it from all the sources. I don't have to click into five different places to look at your blood count, which sounds ridiculous that that's amazing, but it's amazing when yeah. you think about how oh, EHRs it, are. It, it is amazing. And it's pretty standard <laughs> yeah. because as patients, we are not tied to one system, you know, exactly. We may get our labs at an outpatient uh, laboratory. That's not affiliated with the health system where we get our care. And we may have a specialist from a whole entirely different health system. It's very common. Yeah. And then in terms of how we show the vitals and the labs and the meds, we really designed it around how we as clinicians think and how we would write it on our papers. So mm. everything that's in there is how did we use to write it? Now, I firmly believe you shouldn't try to replicate what we did with our cakes and systems, right? We want to make it better because technology can be better than paper, but we did use that as a starting point of, okay, what is the information we want immediately at first pass? Let's make that readily available. Like, you know, I want to know what your latest vital signs are. I want to know how long ago that was. I also want to know what your trend was over a day, but I also want to get an idea of where that sits in the last few days. You can see all of that without having to click anything, but then I can tap on anything and actually delve deeper into it. Same thing with labs. And that's probably where I get the most excitement from people when they're clinicians, when they're looking at it, it's like, oh my gosh, this is what I wish it was like to get data from in our EHR. But really, you know, a lot of this is not from one person, what I think was so essential to the success of how we've designed this is that it was an interdisciplinary team, interspecialty team, and we worked hand in hand with our engineers. And too often mm. the clinicians are separate from the engineers. Mm. We did everything with them. And then I, as the clinical lead, I was on scrum every day with my team. And I, you know, every single change that was made, I played with it, worked with it, showed it to people, got feedback, iterated on it before we, you know, went further with the build. And there were so many things where the engineers who just think of things differently were like, well, what are you really trying to understand from this, you know, visualization? Mm. And so I would say it in words. I'm like, well, why don't we just try it this way? It's like, oh, that's genius. And it made such a big difference. So, you know, going back to throwing out assumptions or, or not doing something because that's the way it's always done, I think has been so essential to to making it successful. And that's unusual in healthcare. We we don't have that rapid prototyping or that constant iteration before something's released. Usually some team builds it, it gets released and it kind of it just sits out there for years and it's hard to change after the fact. And then you have these enterprise systems that say everything has to be system wide. Yeah. And I feel like it's the death of innovation oh in gosh. healthcare. Cause it's like, no, I, you're expecting me to get it right immediately. We have to have room to fail and figure out what's not working and then learn from yeah. it. Now you can't have an MVP like you have in a gaming industry, right? Like your MVP or your minimum viable product has to be accurate. It has to be reliable because you're providing patient care, Yeah, but you also need to except that it's not going to be everything you want right in the beginning. In some elements, there's parts of the application that I feel are still MVP-ish because <laughs> there's so much I want to build on it. But there's so many things in it now that came from feedback. You know, mm. that's actually a fun thing. We iterated on how we got feedback from people mm. because we tried a Qualtrics survey 
but that the activation energy was too high. And we said, you know what, let's just make it one button within the application. It launches right there. It sends us data. We were getting like 150 feedback messages a month. And I would respond to them within an hour, mostly sometimes sooner, rarely longer than an hour, but you know, and I still, we still, you know, aim to have the same kind of response time with people and people, once they know that you're listening and you're taking their feedback, and then they would see that we'd actually take their feedback and implement it in the application. They're like, oh my gosh, you're actually listening and you're actually building stuff for me. Let me give you more ideas. So you're right. It's very hard to do that normally in healthcare. And I'm really fortunate to work with an application where I can actually do that. I love that you have that feedback mechanism that's so lacking. You know, there's so many things that I hate about our EHR system, but I feel like there's nothing that we can do to change it. You know, there's like, why is that button not there? Or why does it take me so long to find a patient's CAT scan that was done in a different hospital? It takes me way too long to be able to do that. And, And you can't change a system that just seems so archaic at times, but it's still very, very sophisticated. Yeah. Um, do you still practice clinically now too? I do. Yeah. I, I, so now I'm an adjunct, well, not that often. So now I'm an adjunct professor or associate professor at Penn. I work five weeks a year clinically and I could not do that little, if I hadn't already practiced there for 15 years where I, you know, understand how everything works. And so I'm in my comfort zone, but I think it's so incredibly valuable and essential on so many levels. And I've had a lot of, I'll say vociferous opinions about not doing that anymore as CEO of the company, but it's so essential because I experience the pains mm. of, you know, that are ongoing. I, I get to see how my application works. I get to actually use my application ah, when I take so care cool. of patients, which is the coolest thing. Yeah. And every time I'm on service, I have 50 ideas of things I want to make better. But I also get to see how other people are using it and learn from that experience. You know, it's just, but the biggest thing is it really, every time I'm on service, especially now, I just have this immense gratitude for what my colleagues are going through who are doing this full time. And every time I'm driven to say, we have to continue to make this easier and better. And at the end of the day, it's all about patience, right? I want to really provide great care for people. And my method of doing that is through making it easier for my colleagues to to take care of people. I'm curious to know how you handled this tension between academic medicine and clinical practice than a business, a healthcare business, because you're in a very unique position where you do all of those. I would put that in present tense. Yeah. Not too many doctors do that. Yeah. I would put that in present tense. I'm handling still, but so first of all, I, I think that there is so much value in being able to develop something from the inside out. You know, I wasn't building it as a business. I was building it to improve care. So it gave me a lot of flexibility to not have to worry about investors and a board and trying to sell, sell, sell. It's like, no, I need to make sure this works. So that's been, you know, a really great asset for us, but I really felt like I went to the dark side. I had to do a lot of soul searching, talking to a lot of people to feel like it was okay to do this. I still struggle with it. But Uh, why, why, why is that? I mean, so much of everything that we use in healthcare, the products and services are part of a business. You're right. You know, I'm in academics and I, I feel a little bit of what you're feeling, but 
why is it all of a sudden that we go into a business, then it's a dark side and the academics are the light side? Because there's a lot of dark aspects about academic medicine. No, you're absolutely right. And, and I would say, I wonder if we should think about it as academic versus clinical versus business, but because the academic world with research, you're right. There was like a whole, a whole nother thing there. Yeah. And I, I considered myself less an academic researcher. I do more research now than I ever did before, but going from clinical to business, you know, I'm just speaking only for myself. I went into medicine really with the goal of helping people. That yeah. was the only goal. And that is a privileged position that I didn't have to go into it for money. And I appreciate that, but that was why I went into it. And it, it was kind of hammered into us early that money is bad. Profit is bad. You're here. Like pharma's bad. That's just, I'm not saying that it is, but that's how it was hammered into us. Yeah. And but, um, but working 100 hour weeks for less is not pay bad. than other industries is not bad. No, you know, I, <laughs> I mean, as a business owner now and seeing how people are treated in business, as opposed to how clinicians are treated in medicine, there is so much that I wish we could change. And one of them is just, we need as clinicians early in medical school to learn about what it means to be an employee. What are yeah. employees rights? What is HR? I didn't even know what HR was for the longest yeah. time. What is, you know, acceptable behavior for a business and what isn't. Yeah. And then how to negotiate, how to advocate for yourself, how to ask for the right title. And when you're offered a title, which in academics is, Hey, can you do more work for free? You actually say, well, what are my resources? What's the governance structure? What's the reporting structure? What tools do I have to enact the change that I want to put in? Or am I just going to have to do it all myself? Yeah. We just don't get taught these things. And, you know, there's such basic things like eating. You know, I remember when I was in training, if I didn't have time to bring in some food with me during a shift, then I just didn't You're going eat. hungry. Yeah, yep. there, I couldn't get food ordered in. There was no actually no place to buy food in the hospital. There was a McDonald's. Because they close early. Yeah. Well, there was a McDonald's overnight in the hospital worked out in the Bronx, but it got held up by gunpoint. And so they shut it down. And so like there was no... you. And then I would be so hungry at night. And then you couldn't even get the patient food because that was restricted. At least this on my residence now, they take turkey sandwiches, you know, from, yeah. but it's like basic human rights of like, why don't we feed our doctors? Well, you know, it is really sad. It's so it's really sad. sad. And then we wonder why we're so frustrated and fed up. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many colleagues have come to me and trainees and mentees who've come to me in the last year to say, can you please like, you know, share your story with me so I can see what opportunities there are outside of clinical care. Wow. And it's sad. I mean, it's not sad in that. I think, I think we need more clinicians who are in administrative positions and in decision-making positions and in other things outside of care delivery. So I think that part's great, but the impetus for this is that people are just tired. Yeah. I and mean, it is a, it is at a crisis level. I mean, we are losing is. so many physicians and nurses who are leaving clinical care because the conditions are terrible. Yeah. You know, one thing that's really crazy is one of the metrics for Caroline is we save people an hour a day, like across the board, wow. people say, oh yeah, easily it saves me an hour a day. Huge. Uh, three quarters, huge. huge, huge. At a particular institution, I won't name, that's not <laughs> too far from here. When I shared that with them as a, hey, you should try this out. They were like, well, that's not going to make me more money. What's going to happen oh if I save God. the docs an hour a day? I was like, I mean, in vomit. addition, <laughs> yeah. 
in addition to the fact that we might be able to eat or drink something or sit for a minute or go to the bathroom, we can think, you know, that's one of the things that I find most stressful is when you don't have time to just sit and think about what's going on with a patient. There just isn't time for that. And and then you make a mistake and you're hung out to dry, but these are really complicated situations. And I think that just like we make everything as, you know, as low of a cognitive load as possible for pilots really feel like we should be thinking about clinicians like, yeah. that. like, how do we make sure we remove any friction? And, and you could give that hour back to the time that we have with patients. Exactly. Right? I could talk to you and ask you more questions that would improve yeah. patient experience. So hospital, you would care about that. You know, it's just, and there'll be there was, time, there'll be time to maybe chit chat for a minute. I feel like I connect. can't, you can't even make that personal connection. Cause you're like, okay, what's wrong? What brought you into the hospital today? Okay. And then, and I feel like sometimes patients are wanting to connect more, but I was like, Oh yeah, I don't have time for that. I, I got to yeah. cut you off and I got to go. It is, it is very inhumane. A lot of these interactions because we're so constrained for time. So freeing up that hour, I think many physicians would use that to connect with their patients better. Yeah. 100%. It's not like they're going to like, Oh, leave well, the gonna, hospital, leave the hospital, get out of work <laughs> early and, you know, go off and play a round of golf. I think they would, many physicians would use that hour of time with their patients. To take better care of their patients. Yes. And maybe eat a bite to eat so they're not hypoglycemic and hangry, (laughs) which also makes a difference. Yes. Or they wouldn't have to go home and chart for another hour at home, which happens consistently with every physician that I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's really a shame. There's such a mismatch between how our systems are designed and how we deliver care. You know, I mean, in the last 10 years, we deliver care as teams. We deliver care iteratively. My entire field of hospitalist medicine came about because it's not enough to see your patient once a day in the hospital. Things are changing too quickly, but all of our systems are still structured around an older way of practicing and around paper charts where you write a note once a day, there's 10 people, 10 people are going to write a note every day. And we really need to just tear all that up and redesign how we do that. And so Caroline's been like my approach to that, which is it's really a wiki team-based approach to how we plan and think about what's going on for a patient using the Google doc analogy. It's like a soap, soap note structured Google doc. Mm. And you know, you can use it to plan your day, think of your to-do items, plan your handoff, come up with your, you know, clinical plan for a patient, but then say, you know what, let me take this and put it into the EHR as my progress note. So instead of writing something 10 times, I write it once and I never write it again. Hmm. Oh my gosh. We're running out of time here. I, I know. So, I want to keep so talking. Questions. <laughs> I'm going to wrap this up, but I want to ask okay. about how your family has had an impact upon your career. You and I both have parents who are immigrants and you grew up in Miami. Mm -hmm. Did they impact your current path in medicine? Definitely. So my parents, yeah, they came from India and they have had a lot of ups and downs in their lives. And one of them was a, a real estate business and it crashed. And I think that would have that would have made a lot of people give up and they turned around and became attorneys and started a law practice and have just never, ever stopped working towards their goals. And they really taught me that, you know, to my core. And along with that is 
as I mentioned earlier, never accepting good enough mm-hmm. and never accepting that something can't be better, never accepting that this is just the way it's always been done. So I should just do it this way. And I, I never appreciated how unique that is be, until, you know, meeting other people and realizing that a lot of people are fine to just put their head down and do their work and just deal with things as they are. And the way I was raised is no, th- this is not right. We should make it better. Let's, let's do it. So that's a hundred percent that I was just telling my mom this, that I value so much that they instilled that in all of us that, and, you know, I love Miami. I'm like half Cuban. I learned flamenco dancing as a kid and, you know, pastelitos are one of my favorite things when I go back (laughs) home. So yeah, a lot of great things coming out of Miami. Well, I learned a lot from my immigrant hustle parents and how they kept on iterating over, over their lives. And that's definitely had an impact upon who, who I am, what work I've done. Yeah. Um, which we didn't even get to talk about. And I wanted to <laughs> next episode. We'll, we'll have two. you back on. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Suva, for coming on the show. So much good stuff here. So honored to have you on. Thank you. I really enjoyed my time, Bon. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Suba Aranjavia. You can find her tweeting at S-U-B-H-A-A-I-R-A-N. And reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston. The cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.